This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Our scripture reading is Psalm 90. This is actually the oldest psalm in the Psalter. You know, the books of the Bible are not arranged chronologically. Uh, The book of Job was the first book of the Bible written, but it's not at the beginning. And uh, Psalm 90 is the first of the psalms to be written, though it ends up being uh, in the 90th uh, place as the Psalter is divided into various books, the first psalm and book four. It is uh, a psalm written by Moses, of course, who lived about 500 years before David, uh, so naturally would precede him. Listen to the word of God, Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, Or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. For as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. 
Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you will give us wisdom and insight as we look to it. Give us that insight that comes only through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. For we pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. We get our name of the month, January, from the Romans. And if you have a calendar that sometimes has some of the ancient symbols on it, you'll see a a head of a man with two faces. And since the Iowa caucuses are coming up, I'd like to say that's not a politician, but it was an ancient god of Rome, Janus. And it was supposedly his ability both to look forward and to look back at the same time. So the Romans named the first month of the year after Janus because usually at the turn of the year, we look back at what has happened and we look forward to what we expect to come. Now for Moses, this was a time that uh, he wrote this psalm, one of his three songs that he wrote in his entire life, and it was a reflection upon his own life and the life of the people of God up to that point and a prayer that God would be at work in the lives of his people throughout the generations. So it is a, he's looking at the long term, what has happened over a period of years and what is yet to come. And the the thrust of this song is that we need to take a long-term perspective, not only on the life that we live now, but also on the life that is to come. Now, commentators divide this up, some into two sections and some into three, but I'll do it into two. Uh, The first 11 verses, and then uh, verses 12 through 17, so we take a long-term perspective on life, as the verse, verses 1 through 11 demonstrate. In the first place, we need to reflect upon the differences between God and us. God has communicated his, some of his attributes to us as part of his creation, the image bearers of God, and especially through regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit to renew us as to make us believers and to sanctify us and to grow us in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the characteristics of God, he communicates with us. And others of his characteristics, uh, he cannot because they are unique unto God himself. But here, Moses is reflecting upon the nature of God. And Moses only wrote three songs. Uh, Two of them, we know exactly when he wrote them. In Exodus chapter 15, after they had crossed the Red Sea, and they had seen the the waters of the sea collapse and uh, drown the entire Egyptian army that was pursuing them, then Moses led the people in a song. Now, in our tradition... In the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition, there is the uh, tradition of singing psalms. 
And originally they were done in a very lively fashion. Uh, as a matter of fact, Elizabeth I uh, so despised the songs that the Calvinists sang in Geneva, she called them Geneva Jigs. Because originally they would be written like, All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. But then there was the, uh, the tradition developed of lining out the song. So the presenter would sing, All people that on earth do dwell. And then the people would sing, All people... You're not cooperating. (laughs) All right, I'll do it again. All people that on earth do dwell. All people that on earth do dwell. Sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. All right, you get the idea. Now, imagine, go look up when you get home later this afternoon, look up Exodus 15. And this is the great psalm they sang after the Exodus. But instead of just about 150 folks, there were about 1.5 million. That's a bigger choir than even a mega church would have. And imagine all these people singing. They're singing as a result of God's grace and delivering. And then there's another song just before he died that's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 32. And a repetition of the same process. Now, the dispute here on Psalm 90 is when did he write it? sometime during the wilderness wandering or sometime shortly before his death. I think it was probably shortly before his death because he is reflecting on what happened to that first generation that refused to trust God. He emphasizes in verse 1 through 6 that God is eternal and we're not. God never had a beginning. We did. God didn't die. We will. We will have an everlasting existence, but that is because of, of, of God and his creating us in this way. So that when we, when we think we need to think of, about the differences between God and us. He is our eternal dwelling place. Life is a journey. The people of God are called sojourners or pilgrims. Just as, as Abraham lived in tents, even in the land of Canaan. And the people of God of Israel lived in Egypt for over 400 years as slaves. And even when after they went into the promised land, they were eventually cast out. And the scriptures speak of, of us as pilgrims and sojourners and our citizenship being in heaven. Because our dwelling place is from the Lord. The Lord is our dwelling place from all generations. The mountains are spoken of as the part of... Uh, the massiveness of God's creation, they rank number two. 
in God's creation. You say, well, what's number one? Well, we are. Humanity is the crown of God's creation. But when you think of the vastness of, of the created world, the, the mountains are that which strike us as, as the most robust and most uh, strong. But he said, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, the Hebrew text didn't have punctuation. Now, some of you students uh, who may have finicky, or we would say assiduous, English teachers who are very uh, insistent upon proper punctuation, you may be relieved to know they didn't have any punctuation, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament to begin with. So you could look at this uh, two ways. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or, if you use, that would be a comma, you are, comma, God. And this is emphasizing that God has never had a beginning, never have, would never have an ending. Or, you could, without the comma, say, from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. With the emphasis being on who God is. And the term here is God the Almighty One. God the All-Powerful One. God who is uh, the one who is omnipotent. And most likely, it is on the, the, the comma, I would say. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is and we're not. And he grounds his faithfulness in his nature. When he cannot lie, he makes promises uh, 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 to his people based on who he is. He is the everlasting God, the one who has no beginning and no ending. But by contrast, we're puny. You say to man, return to dust. You return man to dust and you say, Return, O children of man. You know, people have interesting names, particularly nicknames. Uh, I was looking at my mother's high school annual. My mother is 93. So she went to Tuscaloosa High School uh, back in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, back in the 30s. By the way, she went to high school with Bear Bryant when he came to the University of Alabama as a student coming from Arkansas, Fordyce, Arkansas, where he played for the Fordyce Redbugs, a pesky little high school team. Uh, He didn't have senior math because he didn't offer it in Arkansas, so he had to take it at Tuscaloosa High School, and my mother was in his uh, senior math class. Uh, But I, I was noticing in her high school yearbook, they had different names they had for uh, different people. And uh, one of them was nicknamed Stinky. And, uh, of course, that was before the day of certain personal health care products. So, but I just wondered, now, why would anyone want a name like that? You know what, why God named the first man Adam? You know what it means? Dirt. Dirt guy. <laughs> Adam, from the dirt. Because that's what he made us of. To remind us 
of our humble origins. So uh, Moses said, Lord, you made us out of dirt. And we die, we just go back to dust. So that's why frequently said in uh, funerals, in the Anglican tradition and others who come from that, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, earth to earth. Because that's where we came from. God is eternal. No beginning and he doesn't die. A thousand years are, are nothing to him. A thousand years are in your sight or as, as yesterday when it's past. Think about what you did yesterday. I had my day all planned out. I, I ran a number of errands. I went to three stores. Picked up some things I had to have. And then I played golf, which was made my tea time. But, you know, I look back on it and now it's just a thought. As you think about, what did you do yesterday? It's just a thought. It's gone. Or it's like a watch in the night. The Jews divided up uh, their security system into three different watches from, from sundown to sunup. And after it's over, it's over. And we look back on life and it, time to us uh, it, it's it, it's so difficult to, to, to measure for a young child. Remember, as a young child, you think, well, will I ever get out of school? Let me, let me give you the good news here to get out of school. You have eight years of grade school and then four years of high, high school. That's 12 years. And then if you go, to, go on to college, that's four more years. That's 16 years. Then if you do any graduate study, the shortest term would be one year for a Master of Arts degree. That would be 17 years. But if you go to business school, that's a two-year program. That would be 18 years. Uh, and if you go to law school, that will be three more years. It will be 19 years. And then, you see, it just goes on and on. If you become a, uh, uh, do a Ph.D. or become a medical doctor or dentist, uh, you know, that's three or four more years. So you think of all those years in school. You know, it may be from the time you from the time you start to the time you finish, you may be in school over twenty years. Seems like a long time. But I've, but as you get older your your sense of time changes. I visited my mother recently in Birmingham uh, over Christmas. And I know that she's ninety three and she has pictures, family pictures in her room. And there was a picture of my mother and father. She was about uh, 27. He was 37. And she, she would look, sometimes she looks at that, and she talks about my dad as, as if it were yesterday. Because as you get older, the past just seems to whiz by. But to God, a thousand years is nothing. A thousand years is nothing. God is not bound by time such as we are. And he uses all these analogies, uh, several here, to, to emphasize the fact. Just like the, we're swept away like a flood. And in, the, uh, in Israel, in the, that area of the world, they have what they're called wadis. 
These are uh, creek beds, but they're only full in the spring. It's sort of like, what is that? There's a river in Dallas, that this river basin. What's its name? The Trinity River. I was in Dallas recently. I was looking in a hotel downtown, uh, checking out where we're going to have General Assembly. And uh, I looked out the window, and there was a supposedly Trinity River. There's no water in it, just a big basin. But occasionally it would fill up. In every spring in Israel, when the snows would melt in the mountains and the rains would come, and together these these dry creek beds would fill up. And if you were in uh, in one of them, you could be swept away and drowned. And Moses said, "We're just like the wadis in the desert, swept away in a brief time. We're like a dream." In the midst of a dream, it may seem so long, but when you wake up, it's just nothing. We're like grass that grows up uh, so quickly and then dies out. It's, it's cut down. So God is eternal. We're temporal. Uh, my wife's a realtor, and... Um, one of the occupational hazards of being married to a realtor is that we move a lot. You know, if you, you have to live in a house uh, two years, but then after you're 55, that doesn't, you don't even have to live two years uh, for the tax benefit. So uh, we are now in house number four since we moved here to Atlanta in 1998. So since I was a professor, I had quite a few books. And moving, the biggest part of moving is moving my library. And we moved the last move to house number four. was back in March. And, that, and just a couple of weeks ago, I finally got my, my books all shelved and up and ready. And as I was shelving them, I came across a book by Carl Minninger, prominent psychiatrist of a previous generation, who at the end of the years of his practice wrote a book called Whatever became of sin? And as a psychiatrist, he said, it seems to, that there has developed in our society this view that whatever I do is not really so bad after all. And even if it is injurious, it's not because of, it's not my responsibility, it's, it's my mother, my father. Or, Society itself. And the basic idea of his book was, we have to come back to the principle of personal responsibility. Yes, there is such a thing as sin. And we are responsible for what we do. You know, we keep rehashing the same old heresies over and over. There was a, a British layman, lay theologian, back in the early 5th century by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius taught that the church's emphasis on sin was just too negative. And, uh, especially this idea of original sin. That we're born in this life because of Adam's sin that we have this inward desire and compulsion to rebel against God. 
And Pelagius said, no, that's not the case. That's too hard. We, we come into this world sort of like blank tablets. And we see other people do bad things, and we just sort of imitate them. And that's why we do it. It's, it's that we've just fallen in with a bad crowd. And, of course, the church, uh, he, he had a couple of disciples that uh, propagated the idea more earnestly than he, as often is the case. But the church dealt with this, first as a local synod in Jerusalem when uh, Pelagius was visiting uh, First Church Jerusalem in A.D. 415, and then later at an ecumenical council of the whole church, General Assembly, in uh, Ephesus uh, in 430. And the church condemned Pelagianism. But you know, if you look at the modern world, Pelagianism is really pretty strong. People don't like to think of sin as personal responsibility, especially this idea of original sin, that we sin because we're sinners by nature. Another book I found, this has been a new discovery, um, putting up all these books, I'm like recognizing old friends, uh, there was a book written several years ago on uh, an evangelical response to Catholicism in this ecumenical age. What makes us different? What makes us, how are we similar? And Michael Horton, a professor at Westminster Seminary uh, in California, had a chapter on what keeps us apart. What keeps Protestants and Catholics apart. And uh, he was talking about the doctrine of justification. But he had an interesting observation that many Protestants have gone beyond Catholicism. Because, you see, Roman Catholicism still recognizes original sin. But many Protestants don't. Listen to this. Entire denominations were committed confessionally to the doctrines of justification have ended up by adopting in actual practice a Pelagian message. Remember Pelagius, the 5th century guy? When evangelicals deny human depravity and inability and affirm that human beings cooperate by their, in their own conversion by the use of their own free will and view salvation as a project of moral improvement rather than the divine transformation, They've gone farther afield from, uh, than Rome has been. When it comes to the evangelical doctrine itself, where is the, uh, the emphasis on the objective work of Christ outside of us in history? It's taken a back seat, it seems, to spirituality, piety, morality, social and political crusades, inner healing, and psychology. Psycho- Ologized, boy, he just made that up, uh, inwardness. No longer are we saved from sin by grace. We are now healed from neuroses by therapy. Sounds like Carl Menninger. No longer is condemnation by God for our sins our greatest fear, but condemnation by ourselves for a poor 
self-image. Sounds like Robert Schuller. So you see, we just keep recycling all of these old things, but Moses recognized it long ago. God is holy. We're sinful. And so you see here in verse 7 and following, we're brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we're dismayed. That whole generation died out because when the spies, the ten, the twelve spies reported after surveying Canaan that the land was good and God would give it to them, they said, no, we won't do it. And only Joshua and Caleb stood for the faithfulness of God, but the people rejected them. And, and so much so, if you read Numbers 14, they wanted to kill Joshua and Caleb, Moses and Aaron, because these advocated that they go in and, and take the land. And it was a great sin of rebellion and unbelief. That's why Moses says, we're brought to an end by your anger. That entire generation died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Now, I think many of those folks will be in heaven. But they did not enjoy the fullness of God's blessing here on earth. They ended up with what I used to call when I was a pastor and doing counseling, Humpty Dumpty situations. You know the story, you know the poem, the tagline at the end, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. And sometimes you, you find yourself in situations like that in life. A man came to me a few years ago, and he had broken up his family. He had fallen in love with a younger woman and left his wife and children and divorced his wife and married this other woman. And a few years later, he came to his senses. But by that time, his wife had found a dependable Christian man and had remarried. And he came and he was so grief-stricken, what can I do? Well, it's a Humpty Dumpty situation. He couldn't go back to his former wife. He was married. She was remarried. Two wrongs don't make a right. So I said, you have to make the best of it. Try repent. Express your sorrow and repentance to your former wife and to your children. Make the best of Try to have the best relationship you can with them. But realize there are some situations that you can't change because of what you do. Or as my mother used to tell me, one of the first verses I ever learned whenever she would discipline me, remember, son, the way of the transgressor is hard. That's true. When we deliberately do that which is against the law of God, we reap our own ruin. So here in this, they're reflecting on this whole generation that's dying away. And then the, Moses said uh, some people may live to 70, some to 80, which in those days was a very long time. But, you know, the, the Egyptians had the ideal age. If you could live to 120 that was a sign that you had the favor of God. Guess how old Moses was when he, Moses, prince of Egypt, 
Guess how old he was when he died? 120. And Moses now has outlived all his friends. You know, that's one of the problems of living a long life. There are not many folks at your funeral. Why? You've outlived all your friends. And this was what happened with Moses. Here he lives to be 120, and he outlives almost everyone that he knew, except Joshua and Caleb and their families. But he said, what is that? What if you have a long life? And you look back, and it's your life has been filled with trouble and sorrow and travail. So we have to reflect that God, we're different from God. He's eternal, we're not. He's holy, we're sinful. But then he has uh, the verses 12 through 17, this prayer. You notice the title of the psalm calls it a prayer. And uh, there are two ways of looking at that title. One is to say, well, the first uh, 11 verses would be a prayer of adoration, you know, where you adore God for his eternity and his holiness, which is true. Or it could be that the, the real meat of the point of what Moses is saying is in the prayer that begins in verse 11. These, these, these different petitions teach us to number our days that we may give our hearts to wisdom. When we reflect upon the difference between God and us, it means that we should look at our lives as an investment in eternity and apply our hearts to wisdom. And the the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs tells us, is the fear of the Lord, the acknowledgement of the adoration of God and the understanding of our being delivered from his wrath by grace. So we need to have that long-term perspective no matter what stage you are in life. Now remember... This is not written by a young man. This is written by a man about to die, over a hundred years old. And he's saying, even at that advanced stage of life, Lord, teach us to number, number our days, to apply our hearts to wisdom, to know you, to follow after you, and to apply your principles of living to our lives. And then another petition in verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, your covenant loyalty. You know, this, this term, I remember in seminary when I was taking Hebrew, um, and some Hebrew words sound like you're clearing your throat. And this is one of them. I remember practicing my Hebrew vocabulary, I had my cards, you know, saying them aloud. And I remember saying this word, chesed. And my, my wife was re- reading a book, and I said, chesed. And she said, do you have a cold? She thought I was clearing my throat. Though it sounds strange, it happens to be one of the greatest terms in all of the Bible. And so much so, if you read different versions of the Bible, many versions take two words to translate it. Here in the English Standard version is steadfast love. Or the writers of the King James, the translators of the King James, invented a new word by putting two words together. Loving kindness. Or others would translate it covenant loyalty. Loving 
faithfulness, gracious love, trustworthy affection. Lord, when we look at life, we are such a mess. Just show us your steadfast love. Be as gracious to us in the future as you have have disciplined to us in the past. And look forward and give us that blessing upon all generations. You know, it's easy to get so caught up in life that you forget that we are to live for the Lord. And as we come to this turn of the year, it's more than just a marathon of football games. It is helpful to us to to look back and look forward. And our only hope is grace, the transforming power of the mercy of God. And if we look at our lives, no matter what stage of life we're in, if you're early on in life and you're, you're thinking, what are you going to be when you grow up? Or if you're a parent seeking to raise your children, or to rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then it is helpful for us to look back and look forward. Or if you're a grandparent thinking of your grandchildren or a great-grandparent, this is all for every stage of life to take the long-term perspective in the power of the grace of God shown to us in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth and power. We pray that you will help us as we live our lives, however many years you give us here on earth, that we would live them in dependence upon your grace. We pray in Christ's dear name. Amen.